Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. So if you're just joining us, uh, we're in a series called Life in the Big City. I think we're like, this is talk number five. And we are looking at the end of the book of Hebrews, which describes... uh, the life of a believer in terms of a city. So it talks about how you come into the city by a relationship with Jesus Christ through grace. And then it talks about how uh, even though you've come to that city and experienced some of the wonders of that city, there's still a city far away that God is preparing for us. It's the ultimate perfect city. So when you come to faith in Christ, you get some of it, but then there's this journey, this encouragement to keep going in your faith to reach that ultimate city. And what the book of Hebrews is trying to do is cityfy us. How do we live as citizens of that city even though we still live here? What does it look like to be sort of a spiritually cityfied person? I looked up cityfied. Definition, it means customs and manners and dress of the city born. So you look and act like you are in a city. So we're trying to figure out how do we live like the city? So in order to do that, it's really important that we go back to looking at, well, what does the ultimate city look like? Because that will help us understand what it means. So let's go to Revelation. This is the sort of the end of time, really, where uh, the writer says, the heaven and earth as we know it pass away. They cease to exist. And then he says, I saw a holy city. So at the very end of time, what God has decided will be the culmination of all of history will be a city coming down out of heaven, one he creates. So uh, you'll... You'll never find the city here. That's what we've been learning. There's an ultimate city coming. And it's called the New Jerusalem. It comes down out of heaven. Only God can make it. But it's like a bride and a husband. So it's less about walls and more about people. Intimate. Closely relations. Pure. It's the idea of the bride. The bride's the picture of the church. So it's God's people assembled together looking their very best, like every bride does. And then, here is sort of the ultimate sound of heaven. This is, this is, these are the words all of eternity waits to hear. Look, God is dwelling among men. It's what he's always wanted. He will live among them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them. That's what he's always wanted is to be among his people. And what we learn from that is the way that God is known is in a community of people. Uh, He created them and he redeems them and he brings them together and through interactions with all of them, Somehow, God is able to be known. All the facets of who God is can only be known in a group. 
the way they interact and relate to him. And he wants to be the center of that. That's what it's all about. Can you imagine what it's going to be like to be loved perfectly and then in turn to love perfectly? Because that's what heaven's going to be about. It's supremely social. So that's the city. So when we describe the city and tease out this metaphor, it's a people who've experienced God's love and grace who now become a new society, a new human order with new human arrangements. We don't live, we don't operate under the same arrangements as the cities here operate with. It's countercultural. So even though we're waiting for that city, since we're citizens of that city, we sort of form our own city. We're like a city, this community. And it's highly social. Uh, remember, when we were comparing what it would be like to go to Mount Sinai in the Old Testament when Israel came to Mount Sinai and it was dark and gloomy and God was hidden and they couldn't get to him. Compared to Mount Zion, which the writer of Hebrews says, we've come to Mount Zion, not Mount Sinai, where God's relational. In fact, there was a kind of a party going on. Angels were celebrating. We're all just celebrating grace and what Jesus has done for us. That's city life in the kingdom. So, um, So I have this chart that I want you to see. And if you're a visual learner, you will like this. If you're not, close your eyes. It'll just wreck you. Okay. This was last week's chart. All right. And we went through that. And now we're going to go through this one. And the reason we're going through it is because I'm just um, absolutely committed to making sure that you understand the end of 12 and how it gets us into 13. Because if not, you won't understand, you won't be able to relate It'll be too much. So here's the pictures. The pictures will explain everything we've done up to now and bring you up to speed. We talked about what it means at the end of Hebrews 12 where he says we've come to a city. All right? Now, we're trying to figure out how do we live as people who've come to that heavenly city. And we said the key, this key, was in verse 28. Remember what it said? Since we're receiving an unshakable kingdom, in other words, we've got a great kingdom ahead of us, Let us give thanks. And through this, let us offer worship that's pleasing to God. So Christ has offered himself. That's what Hebrews says. He's offered himself for us. So now the way we live in this city is we are grateful and we offer ourselves back to God to be pleasing to him. That's essentially what it means to live in this. That's the key to living in the city. And there are two qualities, two characteristics of it. One is devotion, and one is awe. Remember how he ends the book? There's a, God's, a de, God's a fire, a devouring fire. So you get this key, and then you get this. And uh, so what I want to do is I... Well, let me take you back to this image again. So we get the key to living, we realize God's a fire and we kinda gotta go through that fire with that key to unlock chapter 13 because 13 is basically just a life of gratitude. It's basically a group of people in the city figuring out how they can please God with their life and be thankful for all that he's done for them. But this transition is very critical. So let's go back to these two words because when we're going into chapter 12, we gotta go with devotion And we got to go with awe. 
So what we're talking about there is eminence and transcendence. So let's talk about those. This is the devotion. This is how we live out our faith. That means God is present and among us. That's what eminence means. It's here. And then we have this awe for him and there's this transcendence. So there's this sense in which he's way above us. And there's a sense in which he's right here. And we've got to relate to this God. He's a fire that we can't get near, according to Hebrews. And yet he's a God who's come here to meet with us, to be relate to us. The ultimate goal of history is for him to be right in the center of us. Well, how is a God that's holy fire, and we said a holy furnace, totally other than us, how do we relate to that God and devote ourselves to him? We need both. We need both of these. And you got to know both before you go into Hebrews 13. So he's, this, is the, this is talking about the presence of God, this transcendence. It means he's beyond us, wholly other than we are. So hear this. He's grand enough to worship, but close enough to love. Okay, he's both. And we need both. You know, most religions of the world only emphasize one or the other. One or the other. So for instance, Buddhism says God is utterly transcendent. Now, let me tell you about that. That means nothing on earth, you can't use anything on earth to compare God to. You can't characterize God, according to Islam, with any earthly sort of quality. In fact, it's the unpardonable sin in the Quran. He's so wholly other than us, we can't even, we can't even describe him in earthly ways. He's not relational and he's not loving. The Quran doesn't speak of a loving God. He's just out there, big. So on the other hand, Hinduism only sees God as present and imminent. In fact, God and the material world are one. Hindus, Hindus worship many gods, and I, I've been to India, and I've seen this. They worship multiple gods, but there's only one supreme deity. So whatever god you worship, it's really ultimately Brahman that you worship. Okay, And here's what their scriptures say about Brahman, who is their supreme deity. Uh, the Upanishads is the name of their scriptures, and it says this about him. The whole universe is Brahman. In other words, everything you see, everything here that you see is God, is Brahman. And in fact, it says Brahman is a cloud of earth, is a clod of earth. It's just anything physical and material. So they're just the opposite of Islam. Islam would never see a God coming to earth to be with us. It would never picture that. It would never picture the end that Christianity does, and it never pictures Jesus coming here. There's no Christmas in Islam. No Jesus coming here. Hinduism, on the other hand, is just the opposite. It's all here, and there's nothing there. So he's not big enough to worship. He could be a plant. He could be anything. You can turn him into anything you want him to be. He's everything. Um, so you can see Christianity is unique. It presents God as both. And I want to show you why you need both. 
Why your soul longs for both. In fact, I love this verse in Jeremiah 23. I came across it. It says, am I a God at hand? This is Jeremiah 23, verses 23, and the prophet is speaking. He says, am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Am I close and far? Well, think about it this way. Can a man hide himself in a secret place? In other words, can you go hide somewhere? Am I so far away that I couldn't find you? And the text answer is, of course not. I know exactly where you're at. On the other hand, don't I fill the heaven and the earth? I fill them both. I'm way out there. I'm way holy other than you are. But yet I'm right here. So I'm reading this book. In fact, I finished a book this week called Yawning at Tigers. Uh, Now, You Can't Tame God was the subtitle. Just happened to be reading it, and it came, you know, mixed with our theme. Because when we talk about the transcendence of God, we're talking about him being above and beyond and mysterious. The strangeness of God. It's fire. He's overwhelming. Dangerous. Alien. Other than us. Yet on the other hand, he's imminent. He's knowable and he's personable. He's relational and he's intimate. He's near us and he wants to draw us to him. So he's this other being, but he isn't cruel. He wants us near him. But you think about the implications of that for us. How do we, how do we live with that reality with a God up here and yet relational down here? Well, it's not an easy thing. Eugene Peterson in his book, Leap Over the Wall, says when we gather together, there ought to be signs outside that say, beware the God. Because he's dangerous. He's a fire. Hebrews has presented him as something transcendent and beyond us. Uh, When I go to, uh, every summer, I do this little coaches outreach marriage retreat and there's a guy who leads worship. I've been doing it for 20 years. Every weekend he leads and every weekend at one point in the thing, he'll look out at the group while he's playing and he'll say, hey, give me a characteristic of God. Call, call him out. Tell me, he'll say, tell me about your father. And everybody starts calling. Guess what's one? And you hear him every, I hear him every single time. He's, he's faithful, he's loving, he's kind, he's patient, he's merciful. No one to this day has said terrifying No one has said terrifying, but he is terrifying. He is wholly other. And see, people who know how terrifying it is to be in God's presence, but who are allowed to be in there by grace are incredibly grateful. They can't believe they can be in the presence of God. But because he's bigger than us, we can worship him in a way that makes him completely other than we are. Now, uh, I'm reading this book, um, Yawning. At tigers, and he tells about a zoo. And maybe this will help. Um, in 2013, a zoo in China uh, started. I'm just going to read it to you. Started receiving complaints about one of its exhibits uh, as visitors approached the African lion cage. They were puzzled to hear barking sounds coming from the creature inside. Turns out, the enclosure housed a Tibetan mastiff. It was a large dog with a thick ring of fur around its neck. Running low on funds, the zoo attempted to pass off the dog as a lion. And so you can imagine that you're going there to see something that is wild and dangerous 
You don't want to hear barking. We don't go to the zoo to see dogs. No dogs at a zoo. This is, this is what he's trying to say in his book about coming into the presence of God. If you reduce God down to something small, he becomes controllable and manageable. And that is why Annie Dillard, a quote you've probably heard or read, said many years ago in a book called Teaching, Teaching a Stone to Talk, she described how we ought to come to church. On the whole, she says, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of the conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches seem to me to be like children that are playing on the floor with a chemistry set, mixing up a batch of TNT. It's madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. Because she says one of these days, this sleeping God is going to wake up and freak us all out. It's powerful. Because here's why you need a transcendent God. This is why you need awe. Uh, Because if not, what happens is your God becomes safe and small and manageable. And you will take control. It's your nature. You'll You'll run roughshod right over him if he's not bigger than you. See, if he's not bigger than you, he can't ask you to do anything and you do it even if you don't like it. You can defy a small God. Because when he's that small, I mean, you pretty much can do anything with him. Don't you need a God who can disagree with you? Don't you need a God that makes you shake your head sometimes at what he demands? Your soul will not worship the way it ought to unless you have a God that big. And I'll tell you something else. Um, you have a little God, you'll be mad at him because he doesn't do the, the, the life the way you want him to do it. This is too small of a God. So here's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. God is big, but he's not abstract. He doesn't want you to just keep him up here and then you got to just figure out down here how in the world you're going to please him. The writer of Hebrews is saying, no, I'm going to show you exactly how to please him, exactly how to say thank you to him. Because even though he's that big, he's close. That's what devotion is about. I can show you how to live in his presence. And that becomes the question. How do you relate to a God that's so far beyond us? How do we experience God? Live for him, please him, say thank you to him? Well, let's go back to our chart. Okay, so we get to chapter 13. Here's the key. We've come through this fire. God's a fire. We get into chapter 13, and all of a sudden, we come to chapter 13 and verse 1. Now, uh, what do you think ought to be the first verse after God is a consuming fire in chapter 13? What would you say? Well, here's what the writer of Hebrews says. 
brotherly love must continue. Now, it's right here that makes some commentators say, I don't know if chapter 13 belongs here. I think someone came along later and added this chapter because you don't say this right after God's a consuming fire. And so what I'm trying to show you is the connection between these two because if you miss it, if you miss this connection between God being a fire and chapter 13, one, and let brotherly love continue this community element right here, then you're gonna miss it. And here's what he's saying, and this is powerful. You cannot be in the presence of this God You cannot show gratefulness and please him unless you're involved. Listen, you can't do it without being in a healthy community, a healthy spiritual community. A rich, deep, robust, what David Brooks says, op-ed writer for the New York Times, in his new book called The Second Mountain, thick community of people who have experienced grace. That's these people. The only way to know this God of fire is in this community of people right here. Now, I told you before when we get it to Hebrews, Hebrews is not a TED talk. It's not just throwing out little interesting things for you to consider. We're trying to figure out how to live in the presence of God and he's gonna turn around and tell you, let me show you what it looks like, you living and operating together. So it's entirely appropriate, as one writer said, that the holiness of God should be followed by verse one. So this is how we experience God as a consuming fire when we're together and in community. That's how we experience God as a consuming fire. So it's not abstract. It's how we're purified. That's what the fire does. It's not abstract. It's street level. It's right down to relationships and interactions. That's how we say thank you to God. Brotherly love. We were thinking last week that the only way to say thank you to God, the only way to do it is you just gotta say thank you to God. No, 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 no. It's a life that's pleasing to him. And a life that's pleasing to him is lived in community. Life in God's presence requires you in my life and me in yours. So together... As one writer said, we're a foretaste of that future city. Well, if the future city is going to have God in the center and us living around him and us in community, why doesn't it make sense that the city here is going to be the same thing? Some of you are sitting around going, well, maybe, you know, I know, but I think people in heaven will be nicer. So I don't, I'm going to wait. I think I'm going to wait. <laughs> and a lot of people do that. Uh, the people here are pain in the neck. I mean, Christians are. Christians can be, we all know it. Pain in the next. So you're like, I'm just gonna wait till heaven, everybody's perfect, then I'll be able to get along with people. Uh, God's not having that. We're a foretaste of that future city. And here's what one writer said We're not perfect, but we're genuine. It's a genuine picture, it's relationships of what it will be. So, where he calls us a pilot plant of heaven created by grace. We're a pilot plant of heaven. How do you say thank you to God for his grace? You live it out in community. In other words, you cannot live a pleasing life in the presence of this God alone. No one gets to walk right into the presence of God and say, Lord, it's just, I just want it to be you and me. I don't need a church. I don't need a community. I don't need anybody. That's anti-Christian. 
Now, listen to this. In fact, the writer of Hebrews has the most warnings in it. Remember, it's trying to get you all the way to that big city. So it's saying you hang in there all the way to the end. And if you don't, you're going to miss out on everything. And so what he's basically saying in this text here is you are to treat community the way you do your faith. Let me say that again. You treat community the way you do your faith. You keep it at all costs. To lose either is to lose both. Walk away from the community is equivalent to walking away from faith. Definitely walking away from faith makes you walk away from community. You don't want to be around people who are spiritual or trying or who have faith. Now, why is that so utterly critical? Now, if you don't understand it, and by the time we're done here with this last little piece that I want to give you, then, then the rest of the book, I mean, the rest of the chapter won't matter. So what I want to do right now is I want to show you the close connection between community and your faith, because if you don't get it, the rest of the book won't make sense, because everything is governed by the reason I have this here is the rest of the chapter is governed by this single verse on community. In other words, everybody and everything we're going to do at the end of this chapter is all under this heading of community. There's no way to do it unless you're a part of community. So you can't bail on it, otherwise you miss the rest of it. How closely connected is your faith to community? Let's, let's look at a text. All right, you're going to like this. This is fantastic. This is Hebrews chapter 10. This is sort of setting up where he's getting to now. Here's what he says. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary... Remember, Hebrews is about Jesus being our high priest and going into the temple and sort of heavenly sanctuary and dying for our sins, okay? Opposite of the Old Testament, which a priest went into the Holy of Holies and sacrificed animals. So he says, brothers and sisters, we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus. And it's a fresh and living, new fresh and living way. He inaugurated this through the, had to go through the curtain that is his flesh. Now, let me bring you up to speed on this. Remember what would happen in the Old Testament? Israel would all gather around on that one day a year in the holy, you got the temple and then the holy of holies. You got this 30 by 30 thick, four inch thick curtain separating God's presence from all of the people. You know why that thing was there? to keep you from getting in and to keep God from getting out because either way, you were destroyed if you were near it. And so the priest would take a sacrifice because he had to sacrifice first for himself, for his own sin, before he could make sacrifices for all of Israel who was standing around that temple in a holy hush, listening. Because back back then, your redemption was audible. You were listening. And what you heard was the bells that hung off that priest's robe. The reason they had that on there is because they knew if they could hear the bells, he was still alive and moving. All right? And then they tied a little rope to his ankle because if the bells stopped, nobody could go in there and get him. You had to drag his bellless fanny out. That's how serious being in the presence of God was. So he would make sacrifices. And this is what he's saying. You, you can bust right through there now. That curtain was torn when Jesus died on a cross. And this text is saying, actually, Jesus' flesh was the curtain. When he died, his flesh opened up. His, 
the redemption that came from Christ dying on the cross literally opened up God's presence to all of us to enter in confidently. <laughs> Look, now we have a great high priest, a new one, who didn't go in and sacrifice for his sins and then for ours. He was the sacrifice. Now let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. He's talking about our faith. Brings, uh, because we have had our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies. This is what God had to do. God had to take our sorry insides and outsides and remove the barriers that were in us so that we could come into the presence of God or else we'd have been consumed by the fire. Christ makes God accessible to everyone by removing the sin that's in our heart and in our body. So he says, whatever you do, don't let go of what Jesus did for you. Hold on to it unwaveringly to that hope. In other words, you've come into this place but there's still another place to get to and you've got to fight along the way to get there. That's your faith. You come to faith and then you hold on to that hope and you never stop believing all the way to the end. That's the message of Hebrews. And God is trustworthy. He'll get you there. Okay, now that we're in your presence, now that we are in your presence, let's go back to our little chart for a second. Now that we are in your fiery presence, what do we do? Let us take thought of how to spur one another on to love and to good works. There it is. I want you to see something. First he says, hold on to your faith. Don't you dare let it go. How do we hold on to our faith to the end? It's a vulnerable thing, I told you. Lots of people bail on their faith. How do they get there? We have to take thought. Now, the construction here doesn't tell you what the main, what you're supposed to take thought of, but here's what it is. Because it tells you, uh, I, I guess I take thought of how to do something. Uh-uh, it's this. Take thought of one another. How to spur to love and good deeds. That's what he's saying. What do you do when you come out of God's presence? You worry about each other. You want to know what it's like to live in my presence? Experience me? It's experiencing community. That's what it looks like. Faith and community go together. You're going to waltz into my presence because of what Jesus did for you? Then I'm going to push you right back into community and ask you to live relationally with those people who have experienced the same grace. Take thought of one another. So access to God has radical social implications. We cannot hold fast our faith and our values and our hopes without reinforcements. We can't do what he's asking us to do without that group. So our social bonds 
reinforce our beliefs. So he says, pay attention to one another. We got to figure out what that means to pay attention to one another. Okay, and then he says, provoke one another to love and good deeds. The word provoke is a negative word. We use it for even when we provoke someone to anger. Yeah, he got provoked. Yeah, somebody provoked. Well, you provoked him. It's a negative term, even in Greek. So the writer using it here is essentially saying this. You know how easy it is to provoke people to anger? You know how you can aggravate somebody really fast? We all know how to do that. We all have a gift. It's a special gift of irritating people. Here's what he's saying. I want it to be just as much a gift to you to to make people want to do love and good deeds as it is to aggravate them. That's what it means to be together. So what he's saying is, the single most transforming influence in your life will be this group. Say, how do I experience God's presence and how do I become changed right here in this group? I'm not shaped by information. I'm shaped by my relationships. I'm shaped by the community. That's the greatest influence in my life. So he's saying two things. Let me summarize them. Number one, you cannot give yourself what you need to have a vibrant faith that lasts to the end. You can't give it to yourself. That's the first thing. Number two, the key way that I express my faith and sustain it over the long haul is to be concerned about your faith. You have to matter to me. Your faith, getting you to the end, has to matter to me or or my faith will disintegrate. Now that's a profound thing he's saying. All right, how do we do that? Look what he says. Two things. One's negative, one's positive. Number one, do not abandon your meetings. You know what he's been saying all along in this book? Don't abandon your faith. He just said, hold on to your faith. Now he's saying, hold on to your meetings. Get together. Don't stop meeting. They stopped meeting with one another because it identified them. And the society saw who they were and they were being ridiculed. They were being persecuted. Their stuff was being taken from them and they were being persecuted for for getting together. And he says, I don't care what it costs you to get together. You make sure you get together because holding on to your faith requires that you meet. Some of them were in the habit of not meeting because it was too costly. And the writer of Hebrews said, I don't care what it costs you, get to that meeting. I don't care what it costs you, hold on to your faith. I don't care what it costs you, get to that meeting. Community and faith go together. You can't abandon one and not the other. Not in the mind of the writer of Hebrews. And then he says, not only are you to meet, which is a prerequisite for the next one is I need you to encourage each other especially because the day is drawing near the end is coming it's going to get harder you need each other you can't survive without each other you've got to encourage each other exhort one another he says now let me just say something about this because this whole book is about not abandoning your faith and uh, the, the danger of 
losing community because you, you walk away from community. And I want to show you how countercultural this is. I told you Hebrews 13 is countercultural. Because this whole book, the whole chapter, and this whole thing hinges on these three Greek words. Verse one is only three Greek words. And I want to show you before we ever, the reason I'm showing you that is because I want you to see. If you think these three words are countercultural, what do you think everything else in this chapter is going to be? You say, what do you mean by countercultural? Our world is so individualistic. We are so self-centered, oriented, and sufficient that we think we can have anything we want, that we deserve anything we want, and pursue anything we want, and nobody can tell us what to do. That's the reason why everybody says, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. I don't want anything to do with organized religion. I don't want anything to do with the church. I want a private relationship with God. This is countercultural. You don't get to say that. You don't get to come into God's presence and dictate the demands. You're, you're grateful for what you have. You're trying to please him. He's not trying to please you. That's why it's countercultural. It sounds so smart to say that. It just sounds, I don't know what it's, I was trying to think of a word. It just sounds so, I don't know, elitist. I'm spiritual. But I'm not religious. That even makes you better. I thought spiritual was enough. When you come to Christ, you come into community and guess what you lose? I'll tell you what you lose. Your privacy. It doesn't get to just be between you and God. Your faith will get weird and self-oriented and you'll start doing what you want. So he says, exhort one another to love and good deeds. This whole, it's the whole business of the book. Let me show you these last two verses, the beginning and the end of the book. Here's the beginning of the book, the word exhortation. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has an evil and unbelieving heart. Well, how do we do that? Still talking about the community. How do we keep each other from having evil and unbelieving hearts? And forsake God. He says, exhort one another. Every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you become hardened by sin. That's the deadly possibility of today, between today and getting to heaven. And your only hope is each other. You need exhortation. And then look what he says at the end of the book. I urge you, brothers and sisters, there's our community word again, bear with my message of exhortation. This is what a good preacher would say at the end of a sermon. He'd say, I know this is tough. You need to understand what I'm saying. Bear under it. I'm exhorting you to exhort one another. That's what he's saying in the book. Because your faith can't survive without it. So if our faith is tied to community this closely, then what does it look like? What does it mean when we gather together? What does it mean to provoke one another? What does the word exhortation really mean? Because I think if we were, I think it's safe to say we need that, 
Many of us don't even know what it is, but it would probably get you through another week if you got it. So then how do we come together and make that happen? That's the question. What does it mean to provoke? Now, let me close just by telling you this. Um, when I was a kid, when I first got introduced to Hebrews 20, uh, 10 25, uh, the King James Version, which I was studying out of, has the word stimulate instead of provoke. Learn how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. I'm in high school. This is 79. And in 79, a commercial came out. Schlitz Malt Liquor Bull commercial. Do you remember that thing? How many of you remember that? All the old people. That's right. Because nobody young remembers that. Uh, But I was in high school when it happened, and my father worked on the commercial. And so I remember my my dad talking to me about it. I just learned this word about stimulating one another, loving good deeds. And I remember the picture that's always, I've never read Hebrews 10.25 without thinking of this. Slitch malt liquor bull. And because uh, he told me, you know, this was the end of the bull represented the bold taste, the big and bold taste of this, uh, this, this drink. And so, uh, you know, they do the commercial at the very end of it. Remember the bull, they'd come right through that wall, come right through a wall, whatever it was. It could be a fence, a wall, whatever the commercial was around. And I remember my dad telling me, he said, you know how to get that bull to go through that wall? They take this big electric prod and right at the right time when they're supposed to do it. And that thing goes flying through a wall. And I was like, wow, that's incredible. That means Hebrews is telling us how to spiritually goose each other. And I've never ever disconnected. It's always been the image. It's always been the image of how in the world can we shock each other. Right into the week to please God, to keep our faith healthy. Next week, that's the title. How do we spiritually goose one another to love and good deeds? What does that look like? Well, that's what we have to focus on next week. And that's, that means that we're going to look at those three Greek words only next week. So I hope you'll be back for that. I want you to stand to your feet. Um, Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be together. We, we don't even know all the wonders of it. To just consider the fact that being together and relating to one another is what you want more than anything else. It's how you, this big, distant God, come right into our presence through each other and with each other. Father, how can we live that out in a way that shows our gratitude for what you've done for us and pleases you? Please show us how to do that. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.